This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Litsky, recording live from a spacious skip in Highbury. <laughs> Let's meet the panel. First up is political commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello. Uh, it's bad news for leading Arlene Foster impersonator Naomi Smith. Uh, <laughs> Foster has resigned as leader of the DUP and First Minister of Northern Ireland um, after DUP Assembly members called for a leadership contest. Before her resignation, the hardliners were apparently angry about her alleged weakness over Northern Ireland protocol and her abstention on a bill to ban gay conversion therapy. They're all in favour of gay conversion therapy. Does this suggest that her replacement is going to come from the headbanger wing of unionism? (laughs) Isn't it quite something to come to the the realisation that in that universe, Eileen Foster is the moderate (laughs) one? She's the woke one. (laughs) Um, Look, I mean, there had been several strikes against Foster, in particular the Ash for Cash public inquiry into some bungled green energy scheme, which was scathing in its review of the administration and led basically to the collapse of Stormont for three years. And I don't think we can underestimate how difficult it must be for, frankly, chauvinists like Ian Paisley Jr., who boasted about how he could get Theresa May to make him a a cuppa, then tell her what she was going to do, to cope with having a female leader, and not only that, but a female leader power-sharing with another female leader. But the bottom line is that this is Brexit gobbling up another of its children, isn't it? A border down the Irish Sea is a significant step towards unification. This of course, should have dawned on the the DUP in 2016 before they decided to support Brexit, or in 2017 before they decided to support May's Red Lines, or in 2019 when they decided that Johnson was a good idea, but it didn't dawn on them. And now they're seriously struggling in the polls. The latest one has them plummeting another four points to 19%. And they desperately need a reset. They need to turn a page. So I'm afraid, Arlene, you're it. We'll have to get Naomi to do a farewell message. (laughs) Next time she's on. Um, Minnie Raman is Campaigns and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, Dorian. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe has just been handed a fresh one-year prison sentence in Iran, and the government has said it's going to redouble its efforts to free her. Are there any efforts to redouble? I mean, it's so heartbreaking that this is still ongoing. So Nazanin's been detained for 
five years now and has been separated from her family. And I think it's very safe to say that Boris Johnson has a lot of culpability there for her wrongful detention. It also doesn't bode well for a government that is currently basing a lot of its policies on being able to negotiate brilliantly with other countries. I obviously don't know what kind of negotiations have gone on behind the scenes, but there was a debate in Parliament a few days ago, which apparently Nazanin herself watched and Dominic Raab didn't even show up which kind of shows the level of respect Mm. they're giving to her situation and to the situation of of other wrongfully detained British nationals in Iran. And her MP, Tulip Sadiq, has also said that there is no evidence that Johnson is actively trying to secure her release. So it's a pretty shoddy effort if there is one. Yeah, because this was when he was foreign secretary. Yeah, exactly. He was culpable for her being in the situation in the first place. Yeah, definitely. He made some really outrageous comments in Parliament very publicly, which the Iranian government used against her. Our guest this week is investigations editor at Tortoise Media. He's been collecting scoops for over 10 years at The Times and The Guardian, including the story of Gary Barlow and Jimmy Carr's celebrity tax evasion. Just sounds like a show. Uh, back in 2013. <laughs> Pitch it. Pitch it. <laughs> There's a lot of people to choose from. Um, more recently, he helped write a series of tortoise called Tech Nations, a deep dive into Amazon's increasing resemblance to a nation state. Alexi Mostris, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. And because you're a tech guy, I'm going to start with uh, with um a clarification needed here. At the Oscars, um, a non-fungible token was created in tribute to Chadwick Boseman, uh, but some people were offended by this shiny digital bust made in his memory. Um, for those like me who, who do still find the whole concept of NFTs baffling, yeah, this was apparently in the goodie bags. What are they? What are the people playing at? Um, and are they here to stay? Or is this going to be something that, you know, that comedians a year from now will be like, oh, remember NFTs? <laughs> God. Well, when I was when I was briefed on this episode, uh, NFTs were not part of the uh, of the thing that I, was, <laughs> I was asked to talk about. And, you know uh, what they are, the do you? They're pretty pretty complicated. That, as far as I understand, right? They are they're units of data that are stored on these digital ledgers ledgers, which are controlled through technology like uh, the blockchain. And, and basically, what it allows you to do is to create a digital asset that can't be copied, and therefore. By the very fact of its scarcity, you can use it in trade. So you can you can apply it to photos or videos or audio or tweets or whatever, mm. and you can say this is one of a kind, can't be copied, and therefore it's got a value to it. Now, whether or not that's true or not uh, is another debate, but that's broadly, as I understand it, in a very, very, very basic way how NFTs work. It's not that different from paintings, really, is it? Yeah, exactly. I think I think it's, I mean, it's supposed to be a unique. It's just because we're product. used to, be, to everything digital can be copied, and this can't. Yeah, yeah. So, do you, do you is this something that you think is 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 a long term thing? Then it's not just some because there seems like a, there's a real bubble vibe around it at the moment with the money that people are spending in the art world, the famously level headed art yeah. world. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, exactly the uh, the art world that is never ever you know attracted to. Uh, short-term trends this this art piece right sold for what 69 million dollars it was called the first five thousand days or something I, I but it could be both it could be both a bubble and something a piece of new technology that you know if used properly could be used in quite inter- interesting and creative ways i mean everybody thought bitcoin was a bubble and look where we are look where we are with that there are certain things trends mm. changes that are going to happen over the next few years in the digital economy that are going to 
you know, come out of the blue to a certain extent. But for, for me, you know, do you want something that is an NFT? Do you want a piece of art that's an NFT? I, me personally, I don't get it yet, but maybe I will. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. You can yeah. join the rest of us in the not getting it crew. Um, <laughs> On this edition of the podcast, it's shaping up to be perhaps the most torrid week of Boris Johnson's premiership so far. His comments about preferring the dead piling up to a third lockdown, controversy over redecorating his Downing Street flat, followed damning revelations in Dominic Cummings' surprise blog last week to compel the sense of a rising tide of sleaze and callousness. Will this actually damage the Teflon PM at last? Then Alexei is going to help us understand exactly what big tech and bigger data could do to our democracies in the future. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, have you seen the government's 2022 Oscar contender, Beacon of Hope, the UK vaccine story? We'll be discussing it and asking why political parties can't be every bit as good at making movies as they are at managing pandemics and international trade relations. Before we start, a reminder, our election special live Zoom is on Friday 7th of May at 6.30pm exclusively for Patreon backers. Join me, Alex and Minnie, plus Ros Taylor and Ian Dunt for high-end election analysis and low-end jokes. It will be good fun, and we're doing it earlier in the evening than usual, so you can still get out in time to drink away the results in a pub garden. <laughs> Registration is free to Patreon people, so just search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, and we'll see you there. So shortly before we started recording, the Electoral Commission weighed in on Johnson's changing rooms nightmare, saying, we are now satisfied that there are reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence or offences may have occurred. We will therefore continue this work as a formal investigation to establish whether this is the case. Alex, can you briefly tell us how a snazzy bit of interior decoration turned into such a big scandal? Um, settle down, children, <laughs> with a cup <laughs> of Ovaltine, for I have a tale. Um, okay, so... In January 2020, work started on a Downing Street flat above numbers 10 and 11. Carrie Simmons, Simons, had hired decorator Lulu Little. So already in February 2020, Johnson is quoted as complaining that she was out of control and buying gold wallpaper. Now, the total ended up being close to 90 grand. The public purse available for such redecoration will only st stretch to 30. So Johnson mysteriously broke, well, maybe not mysteriously, has to cover the rest. Okay, so he set out to find some way to cover the remaining 58 grand. He tried various schemes, including a blind trust like the White House, and various donors, including Lord Bamford, who runs JCB, but none of them panned out. He then tried to strong arm the Director General of Propriety and Ethics <laughs> in the Cabinet Office to pay it. But she too wouldn't play ball, although the Cabinet Office did agree to pay the whole bill, 88K, in June, on the promise that it would be paid back. He then found another Tory millionaire donor willing to pay it, Lord Brownlow, and settled on a different kind of trust structure to do that with. Former Labour Chancellor Lord Darling was approached to run the trust and declined because he's not an idiot. At that point, presumably under pressure from the Cabinet Office, going, show me the money, 
the Conservative Party paid the 58 grand. But then the Conservative Party found out that that was not allowed under electoral rules. So Lord Brownlow, by now we are in October 2020, donated the money to the Tory party, earmarked as for the soon-to-be-formed Downing Trust, okay, headed by, wait for it, Lord Brownlow. The trust is still not set up, by the way. When journalists started sniffing around, the standard reports Johnson took out a personal loan to cover the 58 grand. So now they are wheeling wheeling out that tired line, the prime minister covered the cost personally. But that's basically like me having been arrested for shoplifting, leaving a tenor in that shop a year later, the day before my trial, (laughs) then claiming that I paid for this stuff to the judge. Is that is that clear? Does that make sense? Okay. I just want to know where all his Telegraph column money went. If he can't <laughs> I, afford to cover some Gary Simon's diamond wallpaper. So you don't think of him as a broke guy, but maybe mistresses, illegitimate children, and divorces cost <laughs> money. Who knew? Okay, so that's that part of it. The dead piled high remark, still a, a remarkable phrase to have to repeat. It's completely unrelated, but do you think the two stories coming together add up to to a kind of, you know, that they combine into a picture of a PM whose priorities are all wrong, that there is this mixture of kind of greed and callousness? Absolutely, and rightly so. All of these things were happening while a pandemic was killing tens of thousands of people. So it's not about him possibly having the wrong priorities. We know that in February, when he should have been attending COBRA meetings, he was fretting about wallpaper, that in March he was being pulled out of pandemic briefings to deal with what chair we're going to buy, that in September, when SAGE were recommending a circuit breaker and he was ignoring them, he was miserable, according to several newspapers, about how little he was being paid and how he couldn't afford a housekeeper and how poor he was. <laughs> so the, it, he, he entirely has had at least part of his eye off the ball this entire time. So there's a Chris Whitty sort of waving a kind of terrifying graph at him while Carrie Simons is uh, is waving a Farrow and Ball wall chart. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to focus. <laughs> um he denies, of course, making that remark regarding the dead piled high. I'll say it again. Multiple sources insist that he did. Uh Boris Johnson and, and Michael Gove insist not, so who to believe? Does it ring true to you, that kind of phrasing? Yeah. It sounds entirely like him. And the reason this story terrifies them is that they know a lot of people will go, yep, that sounds like him. At which point, whether he did or not say it becomes irrelevant. He may as well have said it because it sounds like him. Many of the usual pundits are saying that nobody cares about this in the Red Wall, etc., etc. Is there sort of something nihilistic about uh, coverage of Johnson or support for Johnson at this stage? Nothing matters, nobody cares, move on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think there's a problem with kind of differentiating Red Wall voters from everyone else because it's quite a blunt instrument. And I think that's even more important 
you know, we've had a pandemic which will have an impact on how people vote or what kind of things they might support as everything has changed around them. And obviously, local elections will give us a bit more of an indication about that. But on this issue in particular, you know, I don't think people don't care. I think that they're not outrage. So, you know, the media might be telling one story, but what's happening in the public feels to me quite different. You need kind of pure public outrage for Johnson to be forced to resign at at this point. And it might have an impact later on down the line. But I think overall, people expect this kind of behaviour from politicians. You know, this isn't a, a new story. And actually, previous expenses scandals haven't hit the Tories particularly hard. But where I think there is a difference is with the with the bodies piling up comment, especially amongst voters, because there's evidence that a lot of people who voted Conservative in 2019 have been quite lenient with them about the pandemic up until this point because they felt that it was a kind of hard and unprecedented situation. But that comment in particular implies intention. So that's what I think will have cut through and, and might change how people feel. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because because the, the the deliberations leading up to the second lockdown, a part of this are also it's also you know one of the um, the leaks attributed to Chatty Rat, um, whoever that might be. It's a rat, and he's chatty. What more do you want to know? <laughs> like like Roland Rat from from the eighties. But yeah, th- this seems to be kind of this has also come out around sort of you know what Sunak was saying uh, as well. It's interesting that in some ways it's meant to be like oh you know we're interested in the vaccine rollout. That's what voters are thinking about. They're not thinking about mistakes made earlier. But this this sort of really crucial period in the autumn before the second lockdown does seem to be sort of coming back into the public eye. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the public have been kind of distracted. Um, this this kind of moment in time has felt to me like a bit of a return to, to politics before the pandemic. This kind of scandal hasn't really had a lot of public attention up until now. And I think this cumulative effect of kind of failures in government will, will definitely have an impact. And we'll start to see that impact in a few weeks or a few months time. Uh, it's become a bit of a Twitter obsession, I've noticed, to interpret all negative coverage of Johnson um, as Rupert Murdoch's cunning plan to install his favourite candidate, Michael <laughs> Gove. Whether or not it's a Murdoch paper, I think I think there's often an assumption that Murdoch controls all the papers. Now, we've been burnt by this because several months ago we had a special, uh, we had a big discussion about who will who will succeed Johnson uh, when he when he steps down, which he hasn't done. Do you see any pl- do you see any evidence? of sort of plans to remove Johnson? Or is this just sort of, you know, are these just bad timing that all these stories are coming together? Mm. Well, there's clearly at least one rat or multiple rats who don't want Johnson around anymore. I don't think it's, you know, by accident that all of these things are happening at the same time. But I think for me, the clearest evidence that Michael Gove is making a ploy to overthrow Johnson is that both he and his wife, Sarah Vine, or or as I like to call them, Pinky in the Brain, are out defending him. You know, I love Michael Goh's plausible deniability where he said he didn't hear it if Johnson did say anything about bodies piling up instead of saying he didn't say it. And also there was an allegation actually in the Daily Mail that Gove's allies had been involved in in the Cameron lobbying leaks. So... I would not be surprised at all if if Gove is kind of scheming in the background and has been part of this. I would also say that Rishi Sunak would seem to me to be another contender, but he's staying away from the headlines and doesn't seem as um, obvious as, as Gove is. 
you mentioned David Cameron. He must be having uh, he must be having quite a good week relative to the last month. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like side sliding out the back door, running into a shed. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto with Matt Hancock, by the way, because the whole story was about his sister's company the week before. He must yeah. be thinking, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Alexei, Dominic Cummings' is good box office for political journalism um, and indeed political podcasts, whatever he does, people pay attention. Um, that blog, uncharacteristically concise for him, uh, where he flatly denies the claim that he is Chatty Rat. Chatty <laughs> um, Rat could also be a Jamaican dancehall MC, I think. Uh, are you sort of looking forward to, in a kind of... Uh, messy bitch who loves drama way to seeing his select committee appearance next month yes and no i mean yes because it will be quite interesting more interesting than most select committee hearings uh potentially but also really profoundly depressing and distasteful i found this whole thing depressing and distasteful i mean cummings only you know he he revealed potentially illegal behavior on the part of the prime minister as well as a huge deal of alleged callousness but only after he was attacked right otherwise he would have kept quiet what does that say about him and the way that the government is run and Gove being on maneuvers as you just said maybe he is but that's the sort of thing that you do when we're not in a pandemic and we're still in a pandemic we're still coming out of a pandemic people are acting as if it's normal kind of political theater which I find unedifying and then you look at the underlying allegations and exactly as Alex kind of set out in his dystopian fairy tale it's pretty it's pretty serious it's pretty grubby and it 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 fits into a wider pattern and it comes just after dyson and just after cameron and greensill and it just the whole thing is messy and a bit shit and it's also depressing because i don't think many people care actually i mean that's the kind of the the other side of the coin isn't it it's that Maybe it's because people are still very rightly obsessed with with COVID and questions about who or who isn't the chatty rat just are too insidery baseball for people to care about. That's the sort of the the positive way of looking at it. But the the negative way of looking at it is that politicians have worked out in 2021 almost that they can they can act corruptly, if not by intention, then then by mission, by carelessness. And people won't really care. And whether that's a sort of side effect of uh, social media or uh, a, a, a reliance on personality more than in, in, in previous uh, generations of politicians, I don't know. But there's this sense that you can do these sort of things and it, mm. won't, it won't affect you. And on, on Cummings, he does paint himself, or likes to paint himself as this sort of tech super genius, the sort of William Gibson character. <laughs> What has he actually done? I mean, this is obviously, that's, that's sort of your specialist area. If he, what's he actually done since leaving number 10? Do you think there is a second act for him outside of government? Because this is really the first that we've heard, and it's all about stuff that happened when he was in uh, number 10. What does he do? Well, he's, I mean, he has, he has set up an advisory firm, hasn't he? He has set up a tech, information tech advisory firm. I can't remember what it's called. Is it called Sitchatirat? No, yeah, Chatty Rat Limited. <laughs> oh no, I can't believe I gave it away. Oh, no. No. So close. Now they know I'm Chatty uh, Rat. <laughs> but I mean, you know, some of the stuff that he pioneered in terms of data collection is kind of, you know, there's a, a bit of a negative gloss on those sort of tactics nowadays. So I'm not sure he'll be able to revise those 
uh, wholeheartedly. So, uh, yeah, no, I don't know what he's doing with his information technology firm. Hopefully he'll tell us when he gets back to his 10,000-word blog posts. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, talking about what Alexi said about, you know, do people care? Why do people not care? There's another story out there that he may have met the Manchester United chairman, Ed Woodward, and told him he supported plans for the European Super League fiasco, Mm. only to come out and oppose them days later. One source said, perhaps more in hope than anything else, it could be career ending if that happened on another day. Is that considering the sort of popular anger over the European Super League? which was real like Mr. Monopoly man, kind of rich guy, appalling behaviour. Is this something that could bother voters who aren't bothered by all the other things? I mean, obviously, yes, it has the potential to have a lot of cut through. I don't think anything is career ending with someone that has a majority of 80 MPs who are largely sticking with him. But there's, I mean, there's no denying that he has been severely dented in the last few days. And I think that the effect of that on the psychology of someone like Johnson, of someone who has wanted this his entire life and who has obviously fantasized about how fantastic he would be at it and how amazing it would be to be prime minister, I don't think you can overstate the psychological effect those dents will have on Johnson himself. Since we're talking about football, I'm going to use a football term. He's a form player. He's one of those players that when things are going well, they're banging them in. And when things are not going well, they couldn't hit a barn door with a banjo. So we're not going to see a massive effect instantly. But the adjective dodgy is a really fucking hard one to shift, you know, because once it's stuck to you, then everything you do will be interpreted through that prism. Confirmation bias will ensure that it sticks with him forever. And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a small thing. How is this playing out in the polls in advance of the local and mayoral elections, if at all? Are there any signs of, of cut through? So I've only seen a few polls with field work recent enough, and, and the few I've, I've seen haven't shifted in a significant way. But we know by now, right, after two American elections, that that's not how it works. So turnout is king, especially in locals. If these stories, if they fire up opposition canvases to try a little bit harder and are dispiriting to Tory canvases who every time they knock on a door, they get asked about the wallpaper in Downing Street. If they motivate voters who really hate you to go and vote and suppress your base, they can have a major effect, but you may not necessarily see it in the headline figures. We should mention that for that for poll fans, um, the sight of Lawrence Fox polling at one percent level with Count Binface um, <laughs> has been has been one of the few real delights of politics recently. <laughs> Where's Count Binface's glowing telegraph? In, uh, <laughs> Our guest this week is Alexi Mostris, who was a barrister, reporter at The Guardian and head of investigations at The Times before becoming a partner and editor at Tortoise Media, specialising in big tech and business. How much power does supranational big tech have? How will it shape politics? And does it even want to? Or does it just want to avoid regulation and make money? Alexi, big question, I suppose. But I mean, could you sum up 
how these companies are qualitatively different from sort of other, you know, sort of industrialist giants of the past, you know, media, manufacturing, fossil fuels, etc. Like what, what gives them so much power and, and, and power of a different kind? Big question. I think, you know, unlike a factory, the influence that uh, a social media company or a company like Amazon has over uh, an individual tends to be 24-7. They suck up data about you pretty much all the time, whether you're on their own website or not. They use uh, algorithms and AI and technology that are untransparent in their objectives and uh, their effects. In many respects, their technology has leapt ahead of regulation because for years they were able to project uh, an image of kind of, you know, the cool new thing with colourful mm. sofas and, and free meals for staff. Uh, and, and they were offering amazing products. But uh, in the last maybe two or three years, I mean, you'll know this, there has been an increasing uh, recognition that there are major negative externalities uh, to, to, to what they do, uh, whether it's uh, in, in, the, in the realm of data collection, like in Cambridge Analytica, or damaging uh, small businesses. You know, I mean, if we, we can talk about Amazon and the power that, that Amazon has, you know, we, I bet you that we all have made at least three purchases on Amazon in the last three weeks at least. Uh, but it's only relatively recently that the law is catching up with Amazon's massive power and a recognition that it, like other uh, big tech companies, plays the referee and the player. It plays kind of both sides of the field. So that's a very, very broad brush and slightly mm. imprecise answer, uh, but maybe it'll get us get us started. Well, do they have political goals as such beyond the sort of you know appetite for expansion and profit and therefore resistance to any regulation that might impede those things? I think that their staff have political goals. Their staff, most big tech companies tend to be relatively left-leaning uh, and most of them donate, if they do donate, they donate to, to left-leaning uh, political parties. But I think, no, they don't have political goals. Their, their goal, fundamentally, it, it, especially if you're talking about a company like Facebook, is growth and growth at all costs. And so when they interact with politicians, they want to get ahead of any obstacles that we will be put in their way. So if they see regulation coming, one tactic that they uh, use and have used is to try and get ahead of it by proposing that their own regulation and say, look, this is how we should be regulated. We accept we should be regulated. This is how we should be regulated. And at least then they can kind of control the parameters of the debate in a way that minimizes the effect on their fundamental objective, which is to grow, 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 grow. And as you said, since 2016, there have been a series of stories about their role in enabling disinformation, shady advertising, platforming, extremist views. Yeah. As, as far as you can see, so far, and obviously some things have happened. For example, Trump was booted off, you know, Etsy. Um, <laughs> every platform going. Um <laughs> even his uh, even his TikTok lip syncs uh, aren't available. Uh, yeah. But have have the big ones, you know, like I suppose I think particularly Facebook, have they offered real substantive change? Are they taking this seriously or are they just hoping um, that the story is going to go away, particularly now, you know, Trump is out of office and I suppose there is less talk about um, a lot of these things? 
Facebook is, an, is a really interesting example because it's probably doing more than other big tech companies in trying to get ahead of this regulatory debate. And it's doing that in two ways. Firstly, through its Facebook oversight board, which you, you mentioned. In, and this is, this is a group of 20 independent individuals, uh, people like Alan Rusperger, former editor of The Guardian, and uh, the former prime minister of Denmark uh, is on there. Uh, along with lawyers and human rights activists. And they, they all get paid by a trust that's funded by Facebook. So in that sense, they're connected to Facebook, but they are independent. And they they have a mandate to either uh, keep up or, or take down content that has previously been either kept up or taken down by Facebook. So they're, they're an appeal court, basically, for Facebook. And they are going to decide on the Trump issue in the coming weeks. And their decision on that and their reasoning about Trump is basically going to be very, very significant in answering the question about whether tech companies can properly regulate themselves. If they do let Trump back on the platform, that is kind of, it's not so much about whether they let Trump back on the platform or not back on the platform, because there are kind of logical arguments each way, based on whether you sort of come down more on freedom of expression, or um, his overall kind of, you know, deleterious effect on, on democracy. But it's whether it's their reasoning for that decision and how closely Facebook then follows it in, in other cases. Because there's a big question mark about how much Facebook is committed to following the precedent of the oversight board mm. in terms of it, its decisions on individual uh, cases. So I'd, I'd say that there was a big question mark over the oversight board. Basically, their relevance is going to be decided in the next two or three weeks. But the fa Facebook are also the only company to have suggested to U.S. legislators how they want to reform Section 230, which is this, as you might know, that, know this like 1996 provision in U.S. law that since 1996 basically has offered blanket immunity to the big tech firms uh, for content posted by third parties on their platforms. Biden's team is very keen to to reform that. And so are quite a lot of Republicans, although for different reasons. And there were recent congressional hearings in which the big tech uh, chief executives were, were kind of grilled on this issue, not particularly effectively, but they were grilled on it. And Facebook, probably through Nick Clegg, actually, who's their kind of lead uh, VP in these issues, came up with a, a number of suggestions on, on how big tech should be regulated. But they were to Facebook's advantage. The fundamental proposals were things that Facebook could work with. And how do you think social media has, has managed the pandemic and particularly disinformation around vaccines? Because they, they've been a lot less laissez-faire about that than they have been about disinformation in the past. Yes, yes and no. I mean, there has still been a huge amount of spate, a torrent of misinformation on social media about vaccines. And there still is, uh, despite Facebook uh, and, and, and other platforms camping down on it. But they have been more proactive because I think that they basically realised across the world, every single regulator, every single legislator is looking at this issue. And if we don't act, if we don't step up and do something about misinformation, then we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be split up. We're going to be regulated to, to, to the teeth. So they did. They put resources in uh, and they stepped up. Now, Elizabeth Warren, during the 2020 primaries, talked a lot about being tougher on big tech. And on the other side of the aisle, you've got Josh Hawley um, attacking Silicon Valley from the right. What sort of legislation is viable? And yeah. what kind are the companies most 
fearful of you know if 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 say warren was in the white house and she really pursued this agenda like what's Mm. the stuff that would cause sleepless nights in silicon valley yeah i mean it's it's a complex question because there is just so many avenues of attack at the moment against the big tech companies on the warren question the way that democrats and republicans come together in terms of how to better regulate online harm is through children child protection so both In the recent congressional hearings, Democrats and Republicans basically dinged the CEOs of the tech companies for failing to protect children. So this that that is the kind of the concentric circle where lawmakers from both sides of the aisle come together. I don't think that the tech companies worry that much about that because they can always beef up their their child protection controls. What they are more worried about, I think, is the spate of antitrust measures being brought against them. In the US, there are 30 states combined to launch antitrust measures against Google. Uh, Facebook was hit by Federal Trade Commission actions. The FTC actually recommended specifically that Facebook be broken up. In Europe, you've got this new AI legislation that uh, was introduced uh, this month, which basically rules out quite a lot of the more controversial uses of AI that companies like Facebook and and, and Microsoft are developing. And in, e- even in the UK, we're, we're going to get this year and next year the Digital Markets Unit and uh, the Online Harms Bill. So I think taken together, all of the things that are happening in terms of big tech regulation over the next 18 months could significantly affect their business models. But there might not be one thing or one cause of action that you know, is keeping them up at night specifically. Well, this might be a, a naive question, but I was um, there was a, an episode of the Slate Money podcast where they were discussing uh, the Social Network movie, like a decade on, and just sort of saying, among other things, how small the figures seemed then. Um, just yeah. like, hey, what about a few a billion dollars? And <laughs> it, it ends with the number of people that were signed up to Facebook, you know, in 2011, which is sort of dwarfed by the number now. And you say that, you know, that really this kind of version of the Facebook story of Mark Zuckerberg is is so out of date because it's so much bigger now. And I wonder that they are so that, you know, that Amazon and Google and Facebook are so vast. And I wonder why the people running them or why is it in their interest to be so big? It is clearly beyond what they intended and perhaps what they can be on top of. There are so many, like you said, there's so many lines of attack because there's so many different things that can go that can go wrong, you know, in different parts of these sort of empires, particularly something like Amazon, which is so diffuse. They would still be very rich men if their companies did not keep growing and growing and growing. They would be less hated. Like what what is it about why are they so committed to endless growth is i don't know is there like a ponzi scheme factor to it that if they don't stop keep growing then it 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 all falls apart i don't understand why they're obsessed with this scale at all costs oh i think it's really interesting psychologically to to try and answer that amazon is probably the best example to look at so um they have something called the flywheel effect and the idea of the flywheel effect is you know you establish a business and then you establish another business that helps that business And then you establish the third business that helps the second and first business. And each cog helps this flywheel spin faster and faster and faster. And the overall effect is success. And Amazon has has behaved in in recent years a a bit like a trillion-dollar startup in the sense that it's made up of these sort of huge subsidiaries 
that each contribute to each other, but each contribute to the overall success. So they never think we're too big. In fact, Bezos thinks the opposite. He says every day to everyone, we have a day one mentality in this company, which means we've built nothing. We've achieved nothing. We have to go at it from here. We're a scrappy startup, even though we're a billion dollar company. And they even like, you know, they have things like a rule that you're not allowed to print in color in Amazon because it saves, saves them money. They have like, desks made of refurbished doors like they are a proper example of a company that has got got huge but thinks it's small and the relationship between that mentality and their success is is that there's a clear causative link mm. between it the other thing is that that's interesting about the growth of these companies which is you you know we were talking about how how politicians um can can avoid being tarnished by by scandal Big tech companies seem relatively immune from them as well, unless you're talking about a seriously massive one like Cambridge Analytica being a good example where Facebook's share price fell, you know, 20% or so in the in the 10 months after after that scandal broke. Apart from those sort of scandals, they're, they're pretty immune. So Facebook two weeks ago lost 500 million IDs into the open web. Its share price went up. And now it's being investigated for that breach by European regulators. But its shareholders just see its huge advertising revenues increase, especially as a result of, of the pandemic, and go, well, actually, we don't really care that much about the data breaches. We care about your ability to make money, and you're still letting us do that. Hmm. If only, man, if only Jeff Bezos had told Boris Johnson about the option of tables made from repurposed doors. <laughs> uh, yeah. Could have saved him a lot of bother. Um <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned it up top, uh, about Bitcoin. Recently, Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk sort of agreed on Twitter that it incentivizes renewable energy. Uh, didn't explain why, it was just, just one tweet. But I also read recently that Bitcoin mining uses so much energy that if it was a country, it would be in the world's top 30 biggest consumers of energy. It's actually sort of startling stats because of all the um, uh, mathematical equations and computing power required to generate Bitcoin which I don't really understand at all. How can this be made greener? How And, and how is something invented that is just this ecological catastrophe, as far as I can tell? But those, are both, those are all really good questions. I, 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 Bitcoin, yes, it does use a lot of energy. I think it uses something like 0.6% of global, the entire world's energy consumption, which is so weird given that, you know, it's a bit like NFTs. It's like it's like energy being used for nothing, basically, or for something that that only exists within the minds of its with its creators. It's all like incredibly emperor's new clothes. As far mm. as solutions go, I don't know. I don't know. It's a very interesting question. Could you make a sort of sustainable Bitcoin mining firm? It's a good idea for a story. Finally, what are you looking at? You know, in 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 your job in big tech over the next year or so, what sort of things are sort of on the horizon that maybe new sort of companies or uh, technologies or problems that are sort of arising that, that that maybe your average kind of reader listener isn't going to be aware of yet what interests me about tech at the moment is mind geek and Pornhub is is really interesting to me at the moment i i, I think that this company uh, markets itself effectively as another social media company. Uh, its uh, executives have gone on the record comparing it to Facebook, saying they've got the same technology, they've got the same users, they've got the same demographic. It's essentially another 
social media platform. And, and yet articles by Nick Kristoff in the New York Times and others have basically revealed that this is a, a company that tolerates some really, really horrible behavior, uh, whether it's uh, sexual trafficking or, or child abuse. It doesn't have the controls that it needs to have. Its shareholders uh, are hidden from view. It works completely opaquely. And yet it is, you know, the sixth most popular website in the world. So one thing I'm quite interested in is, you know, has it fixed itself? Uh, and I suspect, you know, after after the scandals uh, that were highlighted by Nick Kristoff, and, and I suspect the answer is that it hasn't. And are there any of the kind of new newish platforms that you think are going to become more sort of prominent or it's more of a must have the way I suppose it's become, you know, that most people just feel that they need, you know, they need WhatsApp and they need Facebook and they need Twitter and so on. Um, are any of the kind of new arrivals, do you think going to going to either threaten their supremacy or become part of that sort of must have package? There isn't there. I mean, I was, I was looking the other day to see what the kind of next big China based app is whether there was a sort of 2021 20, version version of TikTok, and and there doesn't seem to be have been one that that takes off. So there was this massive promise that China would be the next great originator of US and UK popular apps uh, following TikTok. That doesn't seem to have happened uh, so much. I think that the, it, it'd be really interesting to look a little bit more into the VR space. You know, you can get these v VR virtual conference rooms now. So if you're kind of bored with with Zoom calls, you can go and hang out on a on a virtual beach or on a virtual rooftop bar and have your have your meeting there. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure whether that technology is sort of the sort of thing that is at the you know the start of something really exciting and and really uh, liberating, especially in this working from home model that that, that we're obviously going to have more of. Or alternatively, whether it's the sort of the new 3D TV, you know those those TVs yeah, yeah. that you used to spend like lots of money on and then fucking never use the the option. I think they should use all that VR technology to create a perfect replica of the most boring conference room you've ever sat in, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and maybe pump in the smell of slightly stale pastries and uh, sticky, sticky carpets. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for the award ceremony the world's been waiting for, underrated, overrated, where each week we pick the zodiac and crash of politics. <laughs> Alex, uh, Andreu, what's your category? I am tempted to go <laughs> overrated, Lulu Little, underrated John Lewis, but then I suspect <laughs> I wouldn't be telling anyone something they don't know. Um, so I'm going to go for overrated inquiries. I cannot remember the last one that said something interesting or unexpected or radical and wasn't roundly ignored. Um, they are the weapon of choice for people who would rather answer questions in six months when nobody's listening. And underrated, as we have Alexi here, I want to say investigative <laughs> journalism. Even uh. even though I loathe the term, um, because all journalism should be investigative. It's like when people say physical. Agreed. It's like when people say physical theatre. I I sort of look at them and I think, why do you know the kind in which you don't use your body? <laughs> so people tend to lump all journalists together and malign them as one group, as if a, a Sarah Vine listicle entitled 10 Things I Heard About Meghan Markle, is somehow doing the same job 
as the team at the FT or the Times who've been working contacts and making FOI requests for years without whom we wouldn't know any of the green seal stuff. They're not the same. And uh, investigative <clears throat> journalism is the thing that has made the most difference in our politics uh, overall in the last hundred years, I would think. And so hooray for them and boo to Sarah Vine. <laughs> yeah, and it's, inquiries. It's, it's slightly... Um, it's sort of slightly dismaying, I suppose, that the, what's making big waves in journalism at the moment, Substack, is a platform which, you know, for, for all its merits, is basically, is generally favouring just opinion writing. And it's just all these sort of big opinion writers have moved, unless you count Barry Weiss as an investigative journalist. I mean, there's a place for opinion writing. Obviously, it's, mm. it's what I do in part. <clears throat> um, and, but the point is i've never called myself a journalist and you know when when i am introduced as a journalist i always correct people because i'm a writer i have an opinion i have a way of structuring it that i hope is interesting to read but that's about it i don't have any of the skills that these people you know investigate with it's like you know it's like uh, comparing the job of a of a sort of detective at the police as you know, someone who writes novels about detective work. It's just not the same job. There we go. That is top-class guest flattery there, Alex. <laughs> oh, you appreciate this, Alexi. They don't all get False that. False modesty on Alex's <laughs> part as well. <laughs> well, we've reached the end of the show, and But Your Emails has been rescued from life spam folder. <laughs> this week, Michael Simmons asks... Is it really impossible for Labour to question and attack the UK government's management of Brexit? Is it too dangerous for Labour in the seats it needs to win back? Red Wall Claxon. Isn't there a distinction between remain, rejoin, a topic to avoid, and implementation of Brexit as a legitimate and valuable target? Mini, what do you think? What can Labour do about criticising the government on Brexit? And, and are they doing it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's impossible. I will also say that I think Labour can win back seats by doing a lot of community groundwork and that the next election won't purely be defined by Brexit as in in recent years. But I think if they are going to attack the government on Brexit, they can do it through the lens of accountability and kind of delivering on promises, conditions that people are experiencing or arise because of Brexit. You know, I don't think it's hard for Labour to say okay, you guys negotiated this whole deal and here's where it's failing. Where I think the difficulty arises for Labour is providing a solution because they have to say how they will fix those problems if they are in government. And that is not something that Labour at the moment is is good at and has done successfully. And, and you know, as, as Michael says, he's right in saying that they kind of must avoid conversations about rejoin because that's just not where the public mood is at on on either side of the coin I would say so they've got a really difficult balancing act but I think it just needs they need to put some time and effort into thinking about how they will do that. Alex as well as uh, being um, Britain's top Arlene Foster impersonator Naomi <laughs> Smith is chief executive of Besser Written um, who yeah. relaunched this week and I attended the online press conference and asked Emily Thornbury Something similar, like what does Labour want to say about Brexit? Yeah, I, I watched that. Yeah. yeah. And she said, uh, sort of like, well, we're going to hold them into account on this, this, that and the other. And it sort of sounded good. But I suppose this was stuff that I hadn't really noticed. Is, are, they just, are they just doing it quietly? They just don't want to focus on it. 
It's difficult, isn't it? They they sort of have to do it without doing it almost. I think what became clear to me fairly quickly after the vote is that we are never going to get the Damascene conversion en masse that we crave, we as in Remainers, you know. There's never going to be that moment where Nigel Farage is sort of marched naked down the down the street with Naomi following him with a ringing a big bell going shame <laughs> it's just not going to happen we're not going to get that satisfaction outside our fantasy world and when actually it does happen the vast majority of remainers reaction is to go why did you vote for it then you wanker you know <laughs> so to punish the people mm. who publicly change their mind so Here's what needs to happen. What we need to do is we need to create the space, the intellectual space for people to change their mind in the privacy of the polling booth. They don't have to publicly admit it. They don't have to say, you know, in some grand apology, you were right, we were wrong, bad, uh, badly done on us. We just have to give them enough reasons and enough space to U-turn in the privacy of the polling booth, just between them, a piece of paper and a pencil. And that's the show. Thank you to Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Alexi Mostras. Thanks very much. On this week's Extra Bit exclusive to Patreon backers, we watched the government's vaccine documentary, Beacon of Hope, so you don't have to. Back us for as little as £2 a month to get full access, as well as getting the episode a day early. You'll hear a preview of the extra bit after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And our thanks to our latest backers. It's a non-attributable thank you from me to <laughs> James Britton Long, Dan Hayward, Alex Cornish, Paul, just Paul, and Will Morgan. A covert WhatsApp message of thanks from me to Gavin Bluck, Elma Gonsalves, Jonah Brown, Joseph Mudd, James Kirkup. And finally, I am unable to confirm or deny that we are very grateful to Eddie Kiernan, Taylor Ledford, Tia Manister, Steve Treby, and Andy Oldham. We'll see you all next week. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alexandreu and Minnie Rahman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Movie lovers rejoice. The government's new propaganda film, A Beacon of Hope, the UK vaccine story is out now, featuring all of your favourite stars, Jonathan Van Tam, Chris Whitty, Kate Bingham, Patrick Valance, and happy little man Matt Hancock. Um, Minnie, <laughs> I watched this on YouTube where I saw that it had fewer than 11,000 views so far. How's the government, is the government's pivot to video uh, as, a, as a means of messaging a good idea? Is there an audience for this stuff? Uh, I think it's a bizarre idea. I mean, having watched it, <laughs> that video to me, it felt like an intern had come up with the idea after watching too many true crime documentaries and it basically somehow accidentally made its way to production. I think it kind of shows a basic misunderstanding of the way people 
access information or watch it. I mean, I, I just don't understand who they thought would watch that in the first place, apart from maybe their own really hardcore supporters. But, uh, you know, maybe that's quite fitting with a government who supposedly doesn't have any experienced comms people at the moment because they've all been fired or quit. The music is amazing. It's just insistently dramatic all the way through. <laughs> oh, for me, it was the um, the weird <laughs> typing of messages on screen and the kind of weird clicky font that kept coming up every oh, night. Oh, the font is hilarious. <laughs> they think it's 24 or spooked or something. It's like... I liked it when you saw the little the cursor move towards the tweet button before Boris Johnson tweeted that the first vaccine had been administered. <laughs> It was just like, yeah. oh, press the button, press the button. <laughs> um, Alex, when we think of political movies, I mean, I saw these you know, short political movies, um, like John Major, The Journey, or Labour with Pete Postlethwaite as the angelic cab driver, just both of which mm. I watched today. Always love that. It's a bit of an in-joke in how the John Major bit, where it's still there when he's driving around <laughs> his child. This little plaintive still there um but they were you know they, they were there was a category that existed for them they were party political broadcasts in the week of a general election what is the reason for this to exist who what's it for because it's from number 10 it's not from like the nhs or whatever like yeah what, what category does it fit under yeah i mean the the john major thing was i think nine minutes the blair thing was under five there were sketches you know with a with a punchline, and they were very effective at their message because their message could be overt. And that was a taster of the extended director's cut of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>